Welcome to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. It's been a few months since voters in Washington, D.C. approved Initiative 71, a measure calling for the legalization of small amounts of marijuana for personal recreational use. Seventy percent of voters backed the initiative, which kicked in in late February. So this week, we're exploring the legal, cultural, and economic shifts the new law has brought to the nation's capital since then, with a show we're calling Weed the People. We'll hear how defense attorneys are dealing with a plunge in pot possession arrests. We'll explore how dispensaries are struggling to meet the rising demand for medical marijuana. And we'll look at the restrictions surrounding weed in Washington, like how you can't actually buy pot, how you can only possess two ounces, and how if you're under 21 or you want to light up on federal land, forget about it. The thing about legalizing marijuana in a place like Washington, D.C., is you can't talk about it without talking about race. African Americans comprise a little more than half of the city's population. But when it comes to marijuana, as Georgetown law professor and former federal prosecutor Paul Butler points out. If you go to court, you would think that white people in D.C. don't smoke weed, they don't buy weed. Indeed, the ACLU reports that in 2010, African Americans in D.C. were eight times more likely than whites to be arrested for marijuana possession. And everybody knows that white people use drugs not just as much, but probably more uh, than African Americans. The D.C. Department of Health has data to back that up. In its annual health report for 2011, the department asked district residents if they ever used marijuana. Respondents were categorized by race and ethnic group. The most likely to say yes, and we're talking about 60 percent, were whites. Compare that with 46 percent of African Americans. So if African Americans are about 50 percent of people who, who use marijuana in the District of Columbia, over 90 percent of people who were charged with marijuana crimes were African Americans. So 50 percent of people who do the crime... 90 percent plus of people who do the time. That's why the legalization of pot is such a racial justice issue here in the nation's capital. When I sat down with Professor Butler in his office earlier this week, I asked him how that was different from other places that have legalized marijuana, like Colorado and Washington State. In a lot of other places, people focused on the idea that if we make we legal it would generate revenue because it could be taxed. So the idea was that it would help the economy. And other arguments were there was a public health reason not to treat marijuana use as a crime, but rather be able to regulate it. So the District of Columbia is really the first place where the racial justice arguments were the main reasons behind the campaign. And That impetus came from the reality of of marijuana law enforcement all over the country, but especially in the District of Columbia. This war on drugs and this war on weed in the District of Columbia that our police officers selectively waged on on African-American young men, it's had devastating consequences. The New York Times did this study last week about how Black men are missing in a number of cities. 
they're just not present. And there are neighborhoods in the District of Columbia where you can see that. Uh, it's almost palpable, the absence of African-American men. And one reason for that is because of this misguided, selective, racially discriminatory war on drugs. And, and why was that? Can you talk more about what is and what was going on? Is that law enforcement is targeting more urban areas, more African-American communities, more low-income communities? It's hard to find a reason for why blacks were 90% of people prosecuted for drug crimes other than bias. You know, sometimes police say, well, we go where the crime is happening or we go where it's easy to enforce the law. Well, you know, if, if they really wanted to go where people are using drugs, they would go to the dormitories of, of places like Georgetown, like George Washington, like American University. They would go to some of those nightclubs on U Street and 14th Street. So there's really no good explanation for it other than the kind of round up the usual suspects. This idea that what a drug criminal looks like is a young black man. It's so interesting because in, in 2010, if we look at some numbers, the ACLU reports that African-Americans in D.C. were eight times more likely than whites to be arrested for possession of marijuana. And yet that same year, the Washington Post did a poll showing that just 35 percent of African-Americans in D.C. were in favor of legalizing marijuana. How would you account for that? When I became a prosecutor in the late 1980s, early 1990s, the district was devastated by this epidemic of crack. And D.C. really was chocolate city during that time. So lots of African-American people understood how crack, this epidemic, had ravaged certain quarters of the city. And we were helped by people like Ronald Reagan, Nancy Reagan, at naming this crack seller as public enemy number one. Fortunately, the crack epidemic waned. It, it had this peak, and then it had its ebb. But we do have a lot of the residual concerns, fear about drug sellers especially. So it doesn't surprise me that some African Americans are concerned about the effects of legalization. I think not so much about marijuana, but concerned about a slippery slope, that first we start with marijuana, and then we go to I don't know, ecstasy, and ultimately to cocaine. It's not likely to happen that we're going to legalize uh, other drugs in the near future. So uh, I think once people understand that, they're not as concerned about the fact that, that marijuana is legalized. When we're talking about the business of legalized marijuana, you'll hear people say that mostly black men have been arrested and put in jail because of marijuana, but mostly white men have been profiting from the legalization of it. How would you respond to that? I, I think a wrong way to look at it is, since it was mainly black men selling it illegally, they ought to be the ones to sell it legally. I've heard people say that, and factually, that's just wrong. But to the extent that black people were doing the time for selling marijuana, and white people mainly weren't, part of it's this moral argument that since African Americans were disproportionately burdened, by criminalization, they ought to have a, a fair 
shot at benefiting from legalization. That was Paul Butler, a former prosecutor and current professor specializing in criminal law and race relations law at Georgetown Law. You can find a link to that D.C. Department of Health study we mentioned and to those ACLU statistics about marijuana arrests. They're on our website, metroconnection.org. Some attorneys in Washington have spent decades defending D.C. residents charged with marijuana possession. But these days, of course, you'll face no penalties for possessing up to two ounces of marijuana. So how are criminal defense lawyers adapting to this new reality? Matthew Schwartz brings us the story. When I asked D.C. defense attorney Paul Zuckerberg what decriminalization has meant for his legal practice, he responds not with words but with a series of emailed photographs. A group of retirees playing cards at a park. A man sleeping with a puppy on his face. The caption, my typical morning after decriminalization. Basically, my phone stopped ringing. It's awfully quiet on the marijuana practice. Thankfully, uh, I worked hard, uh, along with many other people, to bring decriminalization to the District of Columbia. And uh, it's had a tremendous positive impact. In 2012, Zuckerberg ran for the D.C. Council on a decriminalization platform emphasizing the racial disparities in D.C.'s enforcement of marijuana laws. He only got about 2 percent of the vote, but is often credited with bringing attention to the massive number of marijuana arrests in the district. Most people were shocked when they found that so many people were being arrested. We were arresting uh, almost 6,000 people a year for marijuana, and we're only graduating around 2,800 from all of the high schools in the District of Columbia. So we're arresting about twice as many people, uh, mostly young people, as we are graduating from high school. Patrice Sultan is legislation chair for the D.C. Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. She was involved in the decriminalization effort. People kind of joke about why am I trying to put myself out of business, but um, I think that we're all better off from a public safety standpoint when we stop focusing on so many nonviolent drug offenses to begin with. Sultan helped work on a language in the statute preventing police from using the smell of marijuana as a pretext for stopping people. It became pretty apparent that they were that a lot of officers were sort of using that as a justification to stop and search people. And when we combined sort of our anecdotal experience in that regard with the study that the ACLU did in terms of looking at racial disparities and arrests, um, it was pretty alarming. And it just made it very striking that we have sort of an unequal enforcement problem, that we have a problem at the, at the contact point with police. We asked the Metropolitan Police Department for demographic data to see if there's been any noticeable change in who gets arrested. A spokeswoman said she couldn't provide that breakdown. But according to information provided by MPD and the U.S. Attorney's Office, marijuana-related arrests have dropped dramatically. In 2014, there were more than 2,600 arrests between January and July 17th when decriminalization went into effect. After July 17th, that number dropped to just over 200 for the rest of the year. Before decriminalization even became the law, some prosecutors took the opportunity to get ahead of the curve. Uh, My name is John McCarthy and I am the state's attorney for Montgomery County, Maryland. Maryland lawmakers voted last year to decriminalize possession. 
The legislature approved the measure in April, but it didn't go into effect for six months. So McCarthy gathered his police officers and made a decision. I thought it was fundamentally unfair between April and October to criminalize behavior when the legislature says that behavior would no longer be criminalized of October. And we began to basically decriminalize immediately. He even told officers not to charge for paraphernalia. They forgot to decriminalize marijuana paraphernalia. But it was absolutely apparent to me that paraphernalia was going to be decriminalized in the next session, and it was. Montgomery County has long been forgiving on pot. The Intervention Program for Substance Abusers lets first-time offenders avoid a criminal record if they get drug education and treatment. McCarthy calls it de facto decriminalization, and with the new law, he quickly moved to make it official. I just think that we should be putting our resources, whether it's my resource or the resources of any police agency, They should be put into areas that really do protect the public. Look, if you ask me, aggressively prosecute marijuana cases or aggressively prosecute heroin, which is killing people, but 41 people die in this county over the last two years, I want to save lives. I I, I want to save lives and use those resources to intelligently go after something that is really affecting and destroying the fabrics of families. In D.C., some defense attorneys bristle at what they see as hardball tactics from the U.S. Attorney's Office. Unlike Montgomery County, D.C. continued to prosecute possession cases even after the D.C. Council approved decriminalization. But a spokesman for the U.S. Attorney's Office, Bill Miller, said D.C. prosecutors couldn't just abandon prosecutions since they didn't know whether Congress would kill the bill. Miller declined to talk on tape, but in an email said that the office offered leniency where it could. Even before the congressional review period ended, the office asked for lighter sentences, rarely requesting jail time. When decriminalization took effect, the U.S. attorney let people with ongoing possession cases get off with a $25 fine. Today, attorneys who once specialized in marijuana defense are finding other ways to occupy their time. Really, all of my Maryland cases and all of my D.C. cases for simple possession have virtually disappeared. Rockville attorney Mike Rothman is losing a significant part of his practice, but he says he saw it coming. I had looked at the the public polling on positives and negatives on legalization, and I noticed that they were inching closer. Anticipating a sea change in support for marijuana, Rothman started preparing a new specialty. Medical Cannabis Law Group is a subpart of my office that works with new businesses to go ahead and apply for licenses to hold and dispense and cultivate medical cannabis in the District of Columbia and Maryland. There is going to be more than enough opportunity, business opportunity, into the future. It's the end of an era. After decriminalization passed the D.C. Council, Zuckerberg posted on his blog, D.C. unemployment up by one today, me. But he says it's a happy ending to an unfair system he worked hard to fix. Marijuana prosecutions and enforcement were racist, and they were always racist. Uh, And so finally, after 30 years, we're beginning to see positive changes, uh, and it's incredible. I didn't think, honestly, that I would see it in my lifetime, Uh, but I have. We just have to keep... uh, pushing, but uh, it's a nice career when you could end your career by making yourself obsolete. I think you've accomplished something. 
Zuckerberg hopes all marijuana defense lawyers will one day become obsolete. A fitting way, he says, to head into his own retirement. I'm Matthew Schwartz. After the break, a government town approves marijuana use. But what about government workers? So you could legally smoke in the district, but you Correct. couldn't actually partake because of my job. Right. That and more as Metro Connection continues here on WAMU 88.5. WAMU news coverage of labor and employment issues is made possible by your contributions and by Matthew Watson. And support for WAMU 88.5's coverage of the environment comes from the Wallace Genetic Foundation, dedicated to the promotion of farmland preservation, the reduction of environmental toxins, and the conservation of natural resources. Welcome back to this Weed the People edition of Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear, and this hour we are, of course, exploring the evolution of D.C.'s marijuana laws. In this part of the show, we'll spend time with Washingtonians who are still barred from using recreational marijuana. Among them are people under the age of 21. In just a bit, we'll look at special efforts to keep them away from synthetic marijuana. But first, we'll hear from another group for whom recreational marijuana use is verboten, federal employees. These folks are subject to random drug tests and pre-employment drug screening. For those trying to gain a security clearance, the preconditions are even more strict. Lauren Ober brings us the story. On September 14, 1986, President Ronald Reagan gave an historic speech. From the West Hall of the White House with his wife Nancy at his side, Reagan introduced his campaign against drug abuse. It's time, as Nancy said, for America to just say no to drugs. In his speech, he announced six initiatives to combat drug use in the U.S. At the top of the list, drug-free workplaces, both in the public and private sectors. Those of you in union halls and workplaces everywhere, please make this challenge a part of your job every day. Help us preserve the health and dignity of all workers. The day after the speech, Reagan signed an executive order outlawing drug use by federal employees. It also tasked federal agencies with creating their own drug testing programs. What all that means is that if you were a Fed, you could be sacked for drug use. Nearly 30 years after Reagan's address, that's still the case. This is general sense that drug users are bad and we're going to root them out and hunt them down and make them unemployed and throw them in jail. And then no one will ever use drugs ever again. That's Bill Piper. He's the director of national affairs for the Drug Policy Alliance, a nonprofit aimed at ending the war on drugs. He says that not only was Reagan's executive order bad policy, but it now currently puts the district at odds with the federal government. In November, D.C. voters overwhelmingly approved Initiative 71, legalizing marijuana use. Five years ago, medical cannabis also became legal in the city. But if you want to exercise your rights as a citizen of the District of Columbia and smoke a little weed here and there for fun or use cannabis for a medical condition, you can't safely work for the federal government. And Steph Shear says that's a problem. She's the founder and executive director of Americans for Safe Access, a medical cannabis advocacy organization. So until we ultimately change federal law, you're going to have a situation where you're going to have policies that don't match 
the reality of, of the people that are living through those experiences. In 2014, shortly after the marijuana legislation vote, the D.C. Council recognized the need to address pre-employment drug testing here in the district. At-large Councilmember Vincent Orange introduced legislation that would prevent non-federal employers from using drug screening before a job offer has been made. We just wanted to make it a bit more equitable, especially as the country moves toward more legalization of, of, of marijuana. But at the federal level, tides could be changing as well. Last year, the FBI director said it was hard for his agency to be competitive with the private sector in fields like cybersecurity and computer programming because of its strict rules on drug use. So the FBI has relaxed its rules and is now willing to hire people who have used marijuana or other drugs in their past. A lot of other agencies are doing that as well. We reached out to the Federal Office of Personnel Management as well as several federal agencies for comment on their drug testing policies. None of them responded to our request. The executive order issued by the Reagan administration suggests the federal government could be a model for other workplaces. It states that, quote, the use of illegal drugs on or off duty by federal employees impairs the efficiency of federal departments and agencies, undermines public confidence in them, and makes it more difficult for other employees who do not use illegal drugs to perform their jobs effectively. The use of illegal drugs on or off duty by federal employees also can pose a serious health and safety threat to members of the public and to other federal employees. I was curious what some of D.C.'s 200,000 federal employees thought about their employer's policy toward drug use. So I went down to the courtyard at the Ronald Reagan Building and International Trade Center during lunchtime to see what folks thought. Most people were predictably pretty tight-lipped. But a few feds offered their opinion on the condition I didn't use their names. I'm wondering if um, if you think that the federal government should be drug testing people for marijuana. I don't see how that affects them, how that would affect their job. But, you know, depending on what job position you're in, I guess so, they could. Another fed was more opinionated when I asked her the same question. I'm going to say no. Why? Um, I just think that... There's other drugs they should be worried about, and marijuana is not one of them. Are you a fed? I am. <laughs> do you live in the, in the district? I do. So you could, if you wanted to, legally smoke in the district, but you Correct. couldn't actually... Partake because of my job. Right. And I should probably add that I went to Burning Man last year. <laughs> but kept that on the down low because of the same reason. Everyone knows the district is a company town. But currently, the town's marijuana laws are at odds with those of the company. So for now, D.C. residents who punch the company clock will just have to leave the weed behind. I'm Lauren Ober. Boy, she's really frantic, the wildest chick in town. She blows her gauge. Flies in a rage, sweet marijuana brown. Just last week, the American Association of Poison Control Centers reported a spike in calls related to substances known as synthetic cannabinoids. They're often called fake weed, with brand names like K2, Spice, and Scooby Snacks. 
Emergency room visits, overdoses, even deaths attributed to synthetic marijuana are being reported nationwide. Lauren Landau brings us this story about the real danger of fake weed. It's nearly 7 p.m., and the echo of the afternoon school bell has long since faded when I approach a group of teenage girls on a Washington, D.C. street corner. Have any of you ever heard of something called, well, it has a lot of different names, Spice, K2, Scooby Snacks? What do you know about it? It makes you trip. Nobody wants to smoke K2. Yeah, it's like, it's... It's not real weed. I ask if they know anyone who's tried it. I just tried it just because. Wait, you knew what it was? Yeah, I knew what I was doing. What'd they call it? K2. What did it feel like? I was just like tripping. Like, I was already high, but it's different from being just like, oh, I'm high. It make you go like, it make you be, like, I'll be standing right here. I see somebody running across. I swear I would. But nobody be right there. Like, that man running, I would think it was like a lion or something. <laughs> oh, so like hallucinations. Yes, you be tripping. Did you feel like you hallucinated? Yes, and I had to sit down because I was really scared. I thought I was... Oh, yeah, I started crying. This girl was in seventh grade at the time. She and her friends say it's becoming increasingly common for kids to start experimenting with these drugs in middle school. Bruce Points, a public health analyst with the D.C. Department of Behavioral Health, says that's no coincidence. The package is very colorful, Use a lot of language that would attract youth, fruity uh, flavors. Even on one package, which is very popular nowadays, they use Scooby-Doo as a, a marketing point. Kids are taking the bait. A D.C. youth risk behavior survey released last year reports data submitted by more than 20,000 6th through 12th grade students from more than 100 schools citywide. Of that population, 6% of 6th graders, 15% of 8th graders, and 21% of high school seniors reported using synthetic marijuana at least once. And whether you smoke, eat, or drink fake weed, experts say there are risks involved. Dr. Fred Lombardo, a professor at Howard University Hospital cancer center has seen it firsthand. He says the human brain has two cannabinoid receptors. Synthetic analogs are much better ligands to the receptor, and it basically is about two to four times more potent and stays on the receptor much more securely. So in other words, you get a much larger and longer lasting effect than you would from marijuana. It will get its effect probably within about 15 minutes and can last up to about four to six hours. Now, the same thing can occur with some of the natural cannabinoids, but they're much more fat-soluble, so they stay in the body much longer, and you don't get as high an effect early on. On Fridays, Dr. Lombardo volunteers at the Comprehensive Psychiatric Emergency Program at D.C. General, the city's largest homeless shelter. He says synthetic marijuana has been a real problem there. My colleagues tell me that there's at least five or ten extra ones coming in on a weekly basis, and it's probably higher than that. And users have a lot more to worry about than getting cotton mouth or a case of the munchies. You actually can have psychosis, and we've seen that. One of the things that I'm concerned about is it seems to be a problem with the cardiovascular system. He says heart attacks are possible. They've happened. Other side effects include vomiting, strokes, seizures, tremors, muscle spasms, hallucinations, and suicidal thoughts. But here's the thing. Unless someone admits they've used synthetic marijuana, the doctors have to play detective. There are a few tests available, but they don't cover all the bases because formulas are constantly changing. We usually don't test for it. What happens is uh, they usually come in with a clean urine toxicology screen 
and uh, they act crazy. <laughs> and that's simple as that. It used to be that if somebody came in naked and crazy, we usually thought it was PCP. The American Association of Poison Control Centers just reported a spike in calls related to fake weed, one so dramatic that it prompted a public warning about a group of dangerous new synthetic cannabinoids. But this wasn't limited to one city. From January 1st through April 22nd, poison centers got 1,900 calls from people seeking help for exposure to fake weed. That's nearly four times the rate of calls received in 2014. The D.C. metro area was responsible for 28 of those calls. Over at the Drug Enforcement Administration's Washington, D.C. division, intelligence manager Patrick Kerner says during the past four weeks, the office has seen increases in synthetic cannabinoid overdoses in various places throughout its division. Now, we haven't seen a big increase here in the city necessarily, but in other parts of the division. For example, in the Shenandoah, they've had 20 overdoses in the Harrisonburg area. There were somewhere around 20 up in Hagerstown. We had eight in the uh, Hampton Roads area of Virginia. In an email, the D.C. Division clarified that since the beginning of April, somewhere between 40 and 50 overdoses were reported in Hagerstown. Carl Calder is the special agent in charge. I sit down with him and assistant special agent in charge Andre Kellum, who Calder describes as a guru when it comes to synthetic cannabinoids. He says this is a lucrative industry. And don't freak out, but guess where your kids' milk money might be winding up. We can't say specifically that the proceeds are being used to fund any kind of threat to our homeland, but at the same time, What we've seen from my perspective, the proceeds are going to countries such as Yemen, Lebanon, Syria, and Jordan. But while the money is going to the Middle East, Kellum says most of the powder used to make synthetic cannabinoids comes from China. You can mix the powder with acetone and you put it over a quantity of leaf. So manufacturers might take the leaves, typically damiano or marshmallow, and put them on a tarp. Kellum says they then spray the leaves with that liquefied blend of acetone and synthetic cannabinoid powder. It's not a perfect science. Sometimes you leave that sprayer in one location longer than others, and therefore you might have a concentrated or a hot spot. The stuff is inherently dangerous as it is. So if you have a concentrated dosage, that's going to put the public at risk. Because the composition of synthetic cannabinoids is constantly being tweaked and redeveloped, it's a real challenge to crack down on this stuff. There is something called the Federal Analog Act, which essentially applies the duck test to chemicals that mirror controlled substances. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck... The substance basically is going to have the same physical effect on a person than the drug that's already scheduled. But you also must prove that that's for human consumption. And what they typically do, they put on the packages not meant for human consumption. Last April, the D.C. Department of Consumer and Regulatory Affairs published rules aimed at the marketing, packaging, and price of synthetic drugs, rather than just the contents. That way, if a store in D.C. is selling a gram of glass cleaner for 20 bucks and the package warns it's not for sale to minors, regulators can deduce that the glass cleaner is really fake weed. Earlier this year, the DCRA revoked the business licenses of a convenience store in Northeast D.C. It was the district's first time taking this type of action against a business for selling synthetic drugs. So far, five businesses have been slapped with notices of intent to revoke business licenses. Carl Calder says this isn't an inner city issue. One of the uh, U.S. attorneys that I work alongside with calls it 
and equal opportunity destroyer. It's affecting urban, suburban, and rural communities, from Greenbelt, Maryland to Loudoun County, he says. And the problem is growing. I'm Lauren Landau. It's too soon to tell whether the legalization of marijuana in D.C. will tempt more adolescents to experiment with the drug. But some people are concerned, like Dr. Purmji Joshi. She chairs the Division of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences at Children's National Health System here in D.C. She's also the president of the American Academy of Child Adolescent Psychiatry, or ACAP. ACAP is pushing policymakers to consider how liberalizing marijuana may affect children. Hans Anderson met up with Dr. Joshi to find out how she interacts with young people about pot. Oftentimes, I lost a child or the teenager, so what does it do for you? And many times, uh, the, the teenager may actually have an underlying depression or may have underlying anxiety or they are feeling stressed out. And what they will tell us is somehow it just numbs me And then I don't have to think about all the things, you know, all the negative things that are happening in his or her life. Or um, I don't have to feel the psychological pain. And so in some ways, they sort of use it as a cover uh, instead of trying to get appropriate mental health services. You're the president of ACAP, and that organization issued a statement on marijuana. Uh, What was it? Well, uh, the American Academy of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry uh, came out with a policy statement actually in April of 2014 on the heels of the legalization of marijuana in many states. And we thought as a, as a group of child and adolescent psychiatrists that we really need to get the message across that marijuana use is not benign and adolescents are especially vulnerable to its many adverse effects. And marijuana was just legalized in D.C. And I mean, what do you expect to see in terms of children and drug use? You know, so as I mentioned earlier, uh, there is this sense by teenagers when you ask them in your clinical practice, you know, do you use any illegal substances? They don't consider marijuana to be an illegal substance or a drug of use uh, because they think it's, uh, you know, it's a plant that grows. They don't really add that same value or the same meaning to it as they would to like heroin or cocaine that they buy off the street and things like that. So they, they see it as very different and somehow have this feeling that, you know, it doesn't do any harm, when in fact that's not the case. So then what are the the dangers of using marijuana? So, you know, one of the things that I really stress upon is that there was a sense that when you're born, your brain continues to mature maybe till you're seven or eight or nine, but now we know that the brain continues to develop till you're about 24. So all these young people, (laughs) you know, the development of their brain is not at its fullest till the age of 24. So, yeah, one of the arguments I always have is, so we have restrictions on what age children can drive, um, and yet children have access, you know, to all these other substances, and we need to be able to, you know, use the same kind of caution. And why is that? Because uh, we know that teenagers, because they haven't developed the maturity, teenagers by nature are risk takers, some more than others. And so they're always looking to challenge rules, 
So then what do you tell children about about marijuana use, especially with legalization in D.C.? Uh, it's interesting because, you know, I think uh, people have asked, have you seen an uptick in the use of uh, marijuana in kids that have come to the hospital? And I can't say that we have, at least in D.C. Uh, and this is just a gestalt feeling. I, I don't have a survey of any kind. Um, but we see about 200 children in our emergency room every month just for mental health reasons. And I can't tell you that we have seen an uptick in the use of marijuana, that, at least in the children who come for mental health um, uh, care. Uh, and neither have we seen an uptick in an outpatient clinic or on our inpatient services. So is it too premature and it is too soon to tell? I don't know the answer to that question. That was Dr. Permji Joshi of the Children's National Health System talking with Metro Connections Hans Anderson. Are you a parent in D.C.? Have you talked with your kids about marijuana since it became legal? If so, how did you frame that discussion? Share your thoughts with us. Our email address is metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamu-metro. In a minute... Um, When we first opened our doors, we had seven patients, and we now have over a 1,000. The surge in demand for medical marijuana in the nation's capital. It's just ahead on Metro Connection on WAMU 88.5. Welcome back to Metro Connection. I'm Rebecca Shear. This week, we're taking a look at the evolving legal and cultural landscape surrounding marijuana in Washington, D.C. It's a show we are calling Weed the People. And so far, we've mainly focused on what's happening in the nation's capital. But the politics of pot are also playing out in neighboring states. Lawmakers in Virginia recently approved a bill that would allow a limited number of medical marijuana patients to use certain cannabis oils. In Maryland, meanwhile, legislators gave the thumbs up to a number of marijuana-related bills in the session that just wrapped up. We wanted to take a closer look at those bills and get a sense of whether Maryland may follow D.C. in approving recreational marijuana use. Joining us with some perspective on that very issue is WAMU's Maryland reporter, Matt Bush. Matt, welcome to Metro Connection. Good to be here. All right, so I want to talk about all these bills lawmakers passed this session. But first, um, just to give us some background, this year is the second in a row that they've even taken up the issue of marijuana, right? Yes, last year in 2014, on the final day of that year's session, decriminalization passed the General Assembly, and it was on that date and on his last day as governor over a legislative session that Governor Martin O'Malley at the time said he would sign the bill and decriminalize marijuana. That was somewhat surprising because he'd been very vague on it throughout his entire tenure. But then on this final day of his final session, he said, yes, we will sign it. And then he went through some ways he felt he'd actually always supported doing this, but never said he actually supported doing this very masterful political stroke there on his last uh, day on in session. So that passed, and a lot of them a lot of the supporters of the bill at the time said they wanted to rush it through because they felt not knowing what was going to come next year with a new legislature. A lot of people were leaving and there'd be a new governor not knowing who was going to be governor uh, and when they came back in the following year that they wanted to get it through then feeling that this was their best chance of doing that. But by doing that and passing it on the last day and getting it through there right at the end, even the supporters of the bill and the sponsors of it said we missed a lot of things in the bill that they had to go back and fix this year. And that's what they spent a lot of their time doing this year. Legalization, a bill was introduced to legalize it, but they had a hearing and that was it. Really more this year was just focusing on filling in all the gaps that uh, their haste had created uh, from the year before. So so let's talk about the bills that passed most recently. Um, give us the rundown. Sure. So we do have several here that went through. Two in particular decriminalized further parts and filled in some of the gaps of the original law. One, 
they decriminalized possessing 10 grams of marijuana. They did not decriminalize possessing the means to use the drug. So if you had a pipe, if you had a bong, you had papers, that could still put you in prison. But having the drug itself, 10 grams or less, couldn't. They had just completely forgotten to have that a part of the original bill. So they went back and decriminalized paraphernalia this year, knowing that, well, it's kind of silly to be able to have the drug, but the, the means to use it, you can still go to prison for right, that. So right. that was first. Second, they also decriminalized smoking marijuana in public. It's a $500 fine. There was some very intense debate about that, not decriminalizing the smoking marijuana in public, but what the fine was going to be. It initially was $1,000. People thought that was way too harsh. Other people tried to drop it down to as little as two fifty, knowing that oftentimes the you know full fine isn't always doesn't always go up to it's up to five hundred dollars, up to two hundred fifty or a thousand. Some saying, well, let's do it down to two fifty, and others saying, well, that's going to encourage people to smoke marijuana in public. One senator saying, I can't wait to go to a ball game and see them in Baltimore at Camden Yards and see people smoking marijuana in public. Said that on the floor, saying, well, if you make it less than five hundred dollars, this situation is going to happen. So there was a lot of back and forth on that. Anyway, they did end up passing the bill that would. Decrease criminalized smoking in public, the fine would be five up to $500. And a lot of the other bills that came through were dealing with people that have marijuana convictions um, for something that is no longer a crime. So one, it will expunge all criminal convictions for crimes that are no longer a crime. Almost all of those are going to be marijuana possession or anything related to possessing paraphernalia and all that sort of stuff. So if we look into the future, is, is Maryland on the same path that, that D.C. was on? I mean, do we see lawmakers approving recreational use of marijuana in Maryland? They keep bringing it up. I don't see it happening while Larry Hogan's governor, so that's another three sessions. He has said he's against legalization, looks at it strictly. Uh, one of the best answers he had actually was on the WAMU voter guide from last year. It's the one I was referenced. He said he sees too many people seeing as well, we can tax marijuana and use it to spend on all these sorts of other things. He looks at it very much of an, as an economic issue, saying, well, we don't need to start creating all sorts of taxes to pay for other things. But that's the very thing supporters say, well, if you want to come in and cut taxes, why not take something that people are using? It's not going to go away and start the tax and legal. Montgomery County Senator Jamie Raskin, a Democrat, he's been the one who has brought up the legalization bills, as has Delegate Anderson in the House. And uh, Senator Raskin says he will bring it back again next year. My position is that we've decriminalized it, so the next step is simply to regulate it and tax it. We should put the drug dealers out of business. Um, Right now they're able to make money off of marijuana, and then that's money that goes into the criminal underworld, and they can use that for other things. And so we should go down... Uh, the path of Colorado and Washington and the other states that are saying, uh, let's really regulate it and control it um, and make the kids a lot safer. So I think that people want to watch to see what happens in Colorado and Washington, but we're getting closer every year and we're having a much more rational debate and discussion. So it's something I think will happen. Um, I don't see it happening under Governor Hogan's watch. That is at least another three years. That will, I would imagine marijuana legalization will be a big issue in the 2018 campaign. Of course, let's go through the 2016 first. It's 2015, but I could see that being a big issue because uh, he, he at this point is against legalization, but uh, the supporters are going to keep bringing it back each year and each year to try to build the momentum to one house, someday getting it passed through. And a lot of issues like this in Maryland, it takes more than one year. And that's sort of the history on a decriminalization took far more than one year. And I think legalization will take the same amount of time. Well, Matt Bush, thank you so much for the update. Great to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Maryland residents, we want to hear from you. Where do you stand on your state's move to decriminalize marijuana use? Would you support legalizing the recreational use of pot? Email us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at WAMU Metro. I'm so high and so dry.
While marijuana is legal in Washington, D.C., opposition from Congress made it such that sales of cannabis are not. Though there is one kind of marijuana you can legally purchase in the nation's capital, medical marijuana. And the number of people trying to do so is soaring. Martin Ostermule visited a medical marijuana dispensary on North Capitol Street to learn how these businesses are responding to the surge in demand. There aren't many clues inside or outside Capital City Care's building that would make anyone think it's a medical marijuana dispensary. There are no big neon signs with pot leaves on the exterior, and the inside could just as well pass for a spa or yoga studio. So here we have the Capital City Care menu, and this will show you right here each of the strains that are in stock today. Scott Morgan works at the dispensary, and he's walking me through the various strains of marijuana on sale today to registered patients. So if you look there, you'll see Blue Dream, Jack Harer, Master Kush, and Sage. And each of these are, are labeled according to hybrid, sativa, or indica. And so that's going to give you a sense of the effect of each strain. In the 45 minutes I spend here, a half dozen patients come and go, legally purchasing small amounts of pot the way anyone would buy prescribed medicine at a neighborhood pharmacy. It's been close to two years since D.C.'s medical marijuana program was born, and now five cultivation centers can legally grow marijuana. It's sold to three dispensaries, at which patients can purchase up to two ounces per month. Morgan says in the time Capital City Care has been open, it's seen a dramatic jump in the number of patients it serves. Um, when we first opened our doors, we had seven patients, and we now have over 1,000. That goes for the whole program. In May 2014, there were 362 medical marijuana patients in the city. As of a few weeks ago, there were 3,019. That's because last year, city leaders changed the law that created the program. Rabbi Jeffrey Kahn runs the Tacoma Wellness Center, another dispensary. What's changed is that last summer, um, emergency legislation was passed to take away the, the need for a doctor to specify a condition, which made it easier to, uh, to register more patients. As he explains it, the original medical marijuana program was limited to people suffering from HIV and AIDS, cancer, glaucoma, and severe muscle spasm conditions. But patient advocates said the program was too limited and dispensers argued that they couldn't stay in business with such a small pool of patients. So the D.C. Council decided to drop the list of conditions and instead allow doctors to decide who qualified for medical marijuana. Now it's really easy to get a medical marijuana recommendation. I should know. I got one. A service called D.C. Cannabis Cards connected me to a registered doctor who examined me and recommended medical marijuana for a painful herniated disc in my lower back. But with the hundreds of new patients like me joining the medical marijuana program each month, another problem has emerged. Here's Khan again. We needed more people in the program, that's for sure. We still do. I mean, our problem now is that we don't have enough uh, medicine for our patients. That's right. There's a pot shortage in D.C. The problem is that there aren't enough cultivation centers, and those that exist have only been able to grow 500 plants at a time. Last month, the council upped that limit to 1,000, but growers say it will take time to catch up with demand. Khan says that has an impact on patients. Um, today we'll have three strains available, so there'll be more than 100 people who come in, and each of them will be able to buy three grams. Many of them will have wanted to come in and buy 56 grams. So uh, even though sometimes the metric system throws us off, the difference between 56 and 3 is significant. And that's the medicine that they need for themselves for the month. That made me think, what if it's too easy to get a marijuana recommendation now? Are people like me, who have conditions that are painful but not life-threatening or debilitating, making it harder for other patients to get their medicine? Not so, says David Gard, the general manager of Capital City. 
He says medical marijuana is useful for lots of conditions. You know, frankly, like you say, a herniated disc and, you know, people that are in pain, that is completely valid. It's, it's beyond valid. There are 40 million Americans that suffer from pain. What are they supposed to do? Get on harsh narcotics when something that they've tried, like marijuana, works for them? Gosh, no. You know, so uh, I'm, I'm happy that there are more people that, that, are, that are able to, to, to obtain this medicine. It works. Jeffrey Kahn argues that the new, more permissive rules have helped people who may otherwise have been left in pain. So before, automobile accident survivor was not a diagnosis. Today, people who are, who are living with pain because of uh, um, what they've uh, gone through in, 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 in all kinds of things in life now can find help through cannabis. Gunshot wound survivor was not a diagnosis. We see a lot of people with gunshot wounds. Growing patient demand may be good for the bottom line. But both Kahn and Guard say that the D.C. Council may have to act to address the issue of supply and allow more cultivators. Only that, they say, will head off future shortages of medical marijuana. I'm Martin Ostermule. What do you think? Should the D.C. government move to expand the city's medical marijuana program? You can reach us at metro at wamu.org or send us a tweet. Our handle is at wamumetro. That's Metro Connection for this week. We heard from WAMU's Martin Ostermule, Lauren Landau, Lauren Ober, Hans Anderson, and Matt Bush, along with reporter Matthew Schwartz. WAMU's managing editor of news is Memo Lyons. Metro Connection's managing producer is Tara Boyle. Lauren Landau is our editorial assistant. Thanks, as always, to the WAMU engineering and digital media teams for their help with production and the Metro Connection website. That's metroconnection.org. Our theme song, Every Little Bit Hurts, is from the album It Was Easy by Title Tracks and used with permission of the Ernest Jenning Record Company. If you missed part of today's show or you want to listen to past shows, subscribe to our weekly podcast. You can find a link to it on our website, metroconnection.org, or check us out on iTunes. We hope you can join us next week when we'll deal out some wild cards. It's one of our theme-free shows where anything can happen. We'll meet Mother Hubble, a woman known for her work with NASA's famous telescope. We'll visit a school that serves many of D.C.'s homeless children, and we'll slip into something a little more comfortable. Or not, as we hear from members of a certain subculture in the nation's capital. I walked in and thought, where are all the Playboy bunnies and big hairy-chested dudes in leather pants? These are just normal people. I'm Rebecca Shear, and thanks for listening to Metro Connection, a production of WAMU 88.5 News.